Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. We're glad that you're here with us. And we have some good stuff today that the Lord has put on my heart. Amen. We're going to continue our study in the Blood Covenant. But we're going to focus today in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there. And while you're doing that, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this day thanking you, praising you for the opportunity to study your word. The word which became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who is Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And Jesus, we thank you that you lead and you guide us through this study by your Holy Spirit to reveal yourself to us in the scriptures. And to the Father, we give all honor, all glory, all praise, all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Join me in our confession of faith, commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed. Again, we do this each and every Sunday morning. Just to to lay that solid foundation so that everything we build is built upon this foundation. Amen? I call it our statement of faith. And just repeat these words after me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where we shall, or he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. As I said, we're going to be continuing our study of the blood covenant. This is our third week now. Glory to God. And I don't know about you, but I'm learning more as I am studying this out. Hallelujah. And when I learn more, glory to God, you learn more. Amen. So, as we go through this, uh, again, turn to Hebrews chapter 8, if you have your Bible. Matter of fact, let's just go over there. Hebrews chapter 8 right now. It's amazing to me how the Holy Spirit kind of dovetails our studies all together. It's like interwoven and we can see 
the blood covenant through all of these scriptures. As we've gone through in this study, we've seen some very special things weaving these things together. Things, when you read them separately, they don't seem all that important. But when taken in light of the blood covenant, they become very important. Amen? And I think it's generally on these occasions that the Spirit of God gives us kind of a double dose so that we can really let these things sink in. Glory to God. Now, the book of Hebrews, let me just mention this to you before we get started. The, the book of Hebrews is a great book, but it is not an easy book to understand. There are many difficult things in the book of Hebrews. And most of the difficulty comes from the fact that we cannot see it in the light of the Jewish mind. We can't see it in the context of Judaism because most of us have not been raised in Judaism and this is to whom the book was written. Uh, some of you are Jewish believers who spent a portion of your life in Judaism and you find the book of Hebrews speaking perhaps a little more directly to you and some points are uh, more clearly understood by you than to Gentile believers or to Jewish believers who had no religious up, upbringing or background. And so we find it sometimes difficult at certain points, and yet how the Spirit of God has thrilled us and blessed us as we've studied through, uh, as we go through particularly the priesthood of Jesus. I mean, this is where it all comes home, amen? And that, on this study of the blood covenant, I want to remind you that the theme of the letter to the Hebrews is about the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Jesus Christ. And the point of the letter is to tell those Jews in that community to which this letter was written that they can put everything on Jesus Christ. They can put all of their confidence in him. All of their hope in him. All of their trust in him. And so can you. This letter to the Hebrews is telling that they can drop entirely all of the old features that they were brought up in in Judaism. For Christ Jesus is superior in all aspects. He is sufficient for them. Amen. That's the thrust of this book that was written to the Jewish believers, the Hebrews. The, the writer, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is really unknown. It's theorized that it's the Apostle Paul, but it can't be proven. That the message this writer is giving is to tell the Jews they don't need a combination of the old and the new. They don't have to hang strictly on the old covenant traditions that they can come to Christ who is everything they need. Amen. And we can see how the writer says that Jesus is better than the angels. Hallelujah. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And on down the line. And the writer of the book of Hebrews shows that Christ is superior to all of those 
who were in the Old Covenant. But the primary issue and the key to uh, the Old Covenant is the priesthood. Amen. The priesthood of Jesus. That's what dominates the Old Testament is scriptures about the priesthood. That was the way which God and man were brought together. Think about it. So the priesthood becomes the key. And if Jesus is to introduce a new covenant, if he's to be superior to all of those connected with the old, then he must be a superior priest to the Jewish people as well. Amen? Turn instead of chapter 8, go to chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews begins to talk about the priesthood of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he says, We have a great high priest, Jesus, Yeshua, the Son of God. And from there he goes on from verse 5, 6, 7, 8, even 9 and 10. He's still talking about the priesthood of Jesus. So this then is the great focus, the great crux of the book of Hebrews. For really the old covenant was based on a functioning priesthood. So the new covenant must also be based on a functioning priesthood as well. And if it's better, then that naturally infers that he, Jesus, is a better priest. So the writer is hammering his point home to show us the fact that Jesus is a superior priest. Not just any priest, but high priest. Higher than any other high priest. Amen? Now his priesthood is superior primarily as we've studied in our, our time with the blood covenant. If you missed the prior two broadcasts, I urge you to go back to our archives and, and listen to them. Get caught up, amen, at ftfm.org. But Jesus' priesthood is a priesthood after a different order. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek which was introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 5 and verse 6. Now the priesthood of Melchizedek, being a superior priesthood, and having been prophesied to occur from the Psalms, really indicates that the old priesthood would pass away and be replaced. So if there's a superior priesthood, it will certainly come into view at some point in time. And David directly prophesied in the Psalms that it would. And it did. And the writer of Hebrews uses the argument of prophecy to prove that the old priesthood would be set aside and a new one would come into being. A new one would be instituted. And the new one would be after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the account of the man back in Genesis chapter 14 that now becomes the picture of the new priesthood. Amen. And as we've seen in our study, and just a quick review, we saw that Melchizedek and his priesthood was superior. First of all, because it was a priesthood forever, the Bible says. There was no beginning or ending 
But Aaron's priesthood was bound by time. The Levitical priesthood was only involved with time. And you can see this as you study about the book of Leviticus, that they had the certain performance of certain ceremonies and certain offerings at certain times of year, on a continuing basis, year after year, over and over and over and over and over again. Always bringing back, the Bible says, the remembrance, or the remembrance of the sinfulness of the people. Every time they offered a new sacrifice, it reminded them that they were sinners and that they needed a blood sacrifice in order to be righteous in the eyes of God, at least until they committed their next sin. Amen. And something we need to understand is that the priesthood of which Jesus is a priest is better because it was confirmed not by the blood of animals, but by an oath. We studied before the fact that when God makes an oath, it is a permanent confirmation, an eternal confirmation. And if you go through the book of Leviticus, God never makes an oath with the Aaron priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was always, always, always intended to be a temporary priesthood. That's why they had different high priests. Amen. Another point we need to understand is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior because it's a priesthood that was founded on personal greatness, whereas the Levitical priesthood was founded upon racial heredity. In other words, if you were not from the lineage of Aaron, just forget about it. You are not going to be a priest. Ever. Period. End of story. You were not going to be a priest if you could not trace your bloodline through Aaron. Something that you can see about the priesthood of Christ is that it's better because death cannot interrupt it. For Jesus lives forever. Amen. Whereas death continually crept in and continually interrupted the Levitical priesthood. Those priests kept on dying all the time. And not only that, but Jesus' priesthood is better because it offered one sacrifice forever. Not an endless repetition of sacrifices. Also, we can see that Jesus' priesthood is better because it was so pure that he did not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And so it was a holy priesthood in a way that the Levitical priesthood could never be. Since they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever offer a sacrifice for anybody else. Jesus' priesthood we see is superior because it can take men into the presence of God and anchor them there forever. Amen. The Bible says that, that no one who's in God's hand, no devil from hell could ever yank them out of his hand. Amen. Glory to God. That's something the old priesthood could not do. There was always a veil with the Levitical priesthood. But in Christ, that veil has been ripped apart and we have full access to the Father. Glory to God. And then if you go through closing out chapter 7, it's a priesthood that saves to the uttermost, the Bible says, totally and forever. Something also that the Levitical priesthood could not do. Amen?
So if we read the book of Hebrews from chapter 4 through chapter 7, the word of God clearly shows us the fact that Jesus is a priest. Not just a priest, but a high priest. Not just a high priest, but superior to every other high priest in the old system. And not only is he superior, and we don't want to get only that idea, the idea that he's so superior that we can't even approach him. No, 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 no. He's not only superior so far and beyond and above us, but at the same time, he's touched with our feelings and with our infirmities. Amen? He senses what we sense. He has, in all points, been tempted, just like we do, yet without sin. He never gave in to sin temptation, ever. Amen? Glory to God. He is compassionate and personal. And so, though he is the superior high priest, though he is a loftier high priest than any high priest that ever lived, he is at the same time a condescending and compassionate priest. That is a description of our high priest. Amen? Glory to God. And all that leads up to the beginning statement in Hebrews chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken of, everything that I just talked about from Hebrews chapter 4 up through chapter 7, of the things we've just spoken of, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. Glory to God. That's about all we can say to wrap it up. Such a high priest. Of all the things that we just spoke about, this is what you can sum it all up as. We have such as this as our high priest. You know, the Bible chooses amazing descriptive adjectives. Amen? If you go to Ephesians, it says that he's redeemed us because of his great love. You say, oh, Paul, uh, not only just great, I mean, you can use that word great so flippantly, but when the word of God uses a word, it means, the, the true meaning of that word is in its purest sense. It cannot really deal with the problem that we have through the process of language and translations and translations of translations, amen, to where the meaning of the word deteriorates. So words used that mean something mean nothing now, and you have to invent new ones. No, it's not like that. The scripture says we have such a high priest who's superior in every fashion to all the old way of doing things. What a message this is to the Jew. Remember, we're trying to frame the book of Hebrews in the mind and the, the eyes of the Jewish people. This is Jesus Christ. This is Yeshua, the Messiah. You don't need any other stuff. That's all, all that stuff is all second rate, second class. For we have such a high priest who can do everything that no other high priest could ever do. And then he goes on to says, 
we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Now, down in verse 6, he says he has a more excellent ministry. In verse 6, he has a better covenant. In verse 6, he has better promises. And he, and he goes on to talk about that. Amen. We have received a priest that is more excellent than any other. His ministry is more excellent. His covenant is more excellent. His promises are more excellent. Just think of the wonder of the Jewish people as they are reading this section of the letter which was written to them. All of their lives they had, generation after generation, trusted in their Levitical priests. They've been instructed from early childhood to venerate the Levitical system, to venerate the Aaronic priesthood. There was nothing higher in their minds except God himself. It's kind of it's kind of like how Catholics venerate the Pope. But here comes the word of God to them and says, Listen to this. We've got a high priest to turn to now who passes up all the other ones so that all the other ones are replaced. Not added to, but thrown aside. And Jesus is substituted for them. And a far superior priest he is. Amen. Glory to God. And the one who now comes to God must discard the entire old way of thinking and of doing things. He must drop it all together and come to Christ. It's a similar problem, you see, to kind of similar to the problem of the Galatians when Paul wrote and said, don't go back and get tangled up again with the yoke of bondage that Christ released you from. Have you begun in the Spirit? Are you so foolish that now you're going to walk in the flesh? I mean, the Galatians were trying to get back into legalism. He's saying, just drop that entire system and come to Christ. That's the message. Amen. Brother Bob, what does all this have to do with the blood covenant? Because this covenant was established by the blood of Christ. Amen. But it's important, I'm focusing today on the priesthood so that you get a full grasp and a full understanding of just what, just what that means. Amen. For the Spirit has a lot to say about the priesthood of Jesus. But very much more still needs to be said. I mean, in Hebrews 8.1, it just gives us a peek. Amen. I mean, we've been going up to put it into analogy, we've been climbing this hill. We've been going up, going up, going up, talking about the blood covenant. Now we're at the priesthood. We're going up, and now we're at the peak. After the peak, you're going to come back down on the other side. Amen? So there's still a lot of good stuff left. Glory to God. That's just, you could say, the, the capstone of the entire meaning of the book of Hebrews. Glory to God. Now in this chapter... And we're going to try and go through all 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 8. So try to stay with me here. I'm not going to hurry because I don't want to skip anything. But you could go deeper. We could spend two, three studies just on Hebrews chapter 8. But I'm going to try and summarize it all uh, in, in this one session. Because 
the writer gives us three very important points indicating that Jesus is a superior high priest. And these are fantastic points. And, and I thank God that I'm able to share them with you because three points will prove he's a better priest, superior. And those three points are his seat, his sanctuary, and his superior covenant. Amen. I realize that to the Gentile mind, even to my mind, these things don't always just get just drilled into our mind. Let's let the Spirit of God be our teacher and see what it is God wants us to see. Amen. And perhaps if things are not directly applicable to problems we face in the world today, they shall be to those of Israel whom we are called to share Christ with. Amen? First of all, he's a superior priest. Jesus is a superior priest because of his seat. I just love this. Listen. Now of the things which we've spoken of, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. That's chapter 8, verse 1. Just stop right there. Who is seated? Or your Bible might say set, but the actual word means to sit down. He is seated. That's a fantastic statement. And just to make a statement like this to a Jew, the Jew would think, oh, well, then he must need to get up quickly. You see, a priest can't sit down. No priest at any time ever sat down while performing his duties of the priesthood. Jesus has been presented as our great high priest. And now, here comes to the sum total that we can summarize everything about his priesthood. Watch this now. It says, we have spoken. This is of all, the sum of all that we've spoken of. This is the sum. The Greek word there means this is the chief point. This is the apex. This is the peak. The main thing, we said a lot of great things, but here's the most important point of all. That's what it's saying in the Greek. The most important feature about our high priest is he is sitting down. I don't understand, Brother Bob. Why is that so important? Why is it so important they sit down? <laughs> it's very important. Look, the highest proof of his superiority is that he is sitting down. He's seated. In the Levitical priesthood, they never sat down. If you want to flip over, you don't have to, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says this, Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, says verse 12, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Do you see it? thing is, no priest was ever able to finish his work. He could never sit down. The job was never over. He just kept offering more and more sacrifices day after day after day because the sacrifice you offered was only as good as until the next time you committed a sin. So it just kept going and going and going and going all day long, each and every day. So no priest ever sat down. He may have finished his work, he may have finished his shift for the day at the temple and went home, but he never sat down while he was at work because his job was never finished, amen? 
Do you know that if you do a study on the tabernacle or the temple, you'll find out there are not any seats there. In the holy place, there's only one seat, and that's the mercy seat. <laughs> and no priest was going to prop himself up on the mercy seat. Oh, man. You talk about getting struck down. That's the absolute epitome of blasphemy, to jump up and sit down on God's mercy seat. Because the mercy seat, you see, represented the throne of God. Oh, the mercy seat was the place where the Shekinah glory of God would dwell between the wings of the cherubim. That's where God was. No priest in his right mind would go in there and just climb up on the mercy seat and sit on God's throne. Oh, I just can't even imagine. You see, the priest would go in there once a year. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat once a year. And the way historical documents describe it, it was in fear and trepidation, as well as a sense of awe. They go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood of the, the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Then they would turn around immediately and get out of there. Being in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies was really walking on dangerous ground. Because if the high priest had any sin in his life that had not been atoned for, he would die in that room. That's why you know it's, it's tradition says they tied a rope around the ankle of the priest so that if he died, they could drag his body out of there because they couldn't go in and get him. If any priest or if any priest had any sin in his life that had not been atoned for, he would die before the mercy seat. So he didn't want to take a chance. You know, once he offered the blood, uh, sprinkled the blood on the mercy, he left as fast as he could get out of there. Because he didn't want to take a chance of having a sinful thought while in that room with the mercy seat. He sure wasn't going to jump up there and try it on for size. He knows for sure he would never make it out of, he'd never make it alive out of that room to blaspheme God like that. Amen. That's the only time they could ever go into that place. So there was not any sitting down in there either. Least of all, could anybody ever sit down in the only seat in the entire temple, the mercy seat? That was God's throne. Nobody could sit there but God. And nobody would dare be blasphemous enough to just jump up there and sit down thinking he was sitting with God. So... We've established the fact that no priest ever sat down. But Jesus came along, offered one sacrifice, and said, that's it. That's what? It's finished. And since it's finished, he finished his work, he sat down. That's what we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. He sat down. He brought men unto God through one sacrifice. And it was the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Christ did it all. The work was finished. As far as your salvation is concerned, folks, he's sitting down. He doesn't need to lift a finger anymore. It's finished. There's nothing to add to it. 
But yet people are still trying to add to the simple, pure grace of God and salvation by faith. It doesn't need anything added to it, folks. And what an especially joyous truth this would have been to the Jews who read this book of Hebrews. Imagine a final sacrifice, a finished work, finished to the extent that a high priest could sit down. That's fantastic. And if it's not enough, look where he sat. It says he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, God has a big throne, amen? And it's the very same throne that God is on. It's just that he sat on the right side of God. Now, I don't want to split hairs about this. They're all one and the same. It's kind of hard to understand, but it means it's trying to say the right hand, to emphasize, because the right hand was always the seat of honor. It was always the seed of exaltation, as well as a seat of power. It signified royalty and honor, as well as power. The right arm being the symbol of power. Jesus sat down, as it were, acknowledged and exalted and declared to be royalty by God. So God was, in effect, approving Jesus' work. But there's another absolutely marvelous aspect of this. The idea of sitting on the right hand of the throne brings to mind the expression related to the Sanhedrin. Now, you know, we did a study before. Uh, you remember that in Israel there's a ruling body of 70 men known as the Sanhedrin. These men were, were responsible for making judgments and interpreting law. They were technically the Jewish house of judgment, the supreme court of the land, as it were. They were the ones who were executing justice whenever justice was being executed in the land. And there were always two scribes at all times before the judges of the Sanhedrin. One scribe sat on the right hand, the other scribe on the left. And it was always the business, watch this now, it was always the business of the scribe who was on the right hand to write out the letters of acquittal. And it was always the business of the scribe on the left hand to write out the condemnations. I didn't understand this till I was studying it out. Amen. The Bible says that Jesus came in John chapter 3 verse 17, not to what? Condemn the world. In other words, he wasn't going to be sitting on the left hand of the throne. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Hence his place is never on the left hand, but always on the right hand, where he writes out the pardons for his own people that believe on him. Amen? Can you see how all of this is tying together? Little minutia like that just verifies the accuracy of the scripture. What's it saying to us? It's saying that Jesus Christ has been given the place of honor. He's been ushered into the Holy of Holies. He's been seated with God on God's throne. And to a Jew, that's very hard to handle. To an Orthodox Jew, that smacks of terrible blasphemy. But let me go one step further. I want to tell you this. <laughs> As if that wasn't enough to blow your mind. Listen to this one. Oh, I love this. You know the first thing 
that we're going to be able to do when we get to heaven? We're going to get to go up on that throne too. Well, you're saying, oh, wait a minute, Brother Bob. Wait a minute now. Revelation 3.20 says this, To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. <laughs> See? Glory to God. You say, what then's an overcomer? Well, read First John. It's one who overcomes the world. What is it that overcomes the world? Even our what? Our faith. Our faith in him. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are considered overcomers. And all of us who are overcomers can just walk right up there, crawl right up on the throne with Jesus, which is the throne of God. Amen. I seen a picture one time of, of when President John Kennedy was in office. And it's a picture in the Oval Office, and he had his son, John Jr. I guess he was about four, so I don't know. But the picture was the son up in Daddy's chair, the chair, behind the desk of the most powerful man in America, if not the world. But did little John Jr., was he intimidated by that at all? No. Why? Because he had son privileges that allowed him to sit in that chair. What you or I would be ridiculed for, we just walked into the Oval Office and sat down behind the president's desk. If we did that on our own, it'd be big trouble. But little John, he did it and nobody thought anything of it. Amen? You see, as far as God's throne is concerned, that is something provided for us by Jesus Christ. Something that no priest could ever do himself. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, You come up on my throne as I've come up on my Father's throne. That's exciting, isn't it? That's why, that's why the, what the Bible means when Paul said to the Corinthians, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. We are one with Christ. Where he goes, we go. And so it is that Jesus Christ is a priest who has every right to sit on the mercy seat and to sit on the throne of God. And not only that, but to bring us there with him, to sit there with him. Glory to God. Now, it's a special throne in a special place. It's not the throne in the temple or in the tent. It's not the throne in the tabernacle. It's the throne of majesty. Where is it? In the heavens. Now, we're getting out of the world a little bit here, amen? This is going past the, the natural course of things. In the heavens, speaks, of course, of Christ's ascension. Having ascended to heaven, he was seated, right, with the Father. That's chapter 1, verse 3. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, He passed through the heavens, and so on and so forth. Amen. Glory to God. Man, oh man, where does time go? So Jesus Christ, having accomplished his work, finished it and passed through the heavens, the stellar heavens, the, the atmospheric heavens, entered into God's heaven, and then sat down on God's throne. That's our high priest. And the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is on the fact that Christ is at the right hand of God. And I think the purpose of it is to assure those who were deprived of temple services in Jerusalem 
because they converted Christianity, they've been excommunicated out of the temple, they didn't have to worry about it. Because the earth and everything here is just a shadowy realm. Because they had a real high priest in the real holy of holies, in the real heaven of God, who is there for them, ministering and interceding for them. So the, the, the crowning argument for the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ and his exaltation to heaven is to sit in the presence of the Father. Amen. That's the glorious sum of everything the Bible tells us that we just read that shows us he is indeed a superior priest for us. And that leads us now to the second point of this chapter. Not only is he superior because of his seat, but because of his sanctuary. You see, since he's a superior priest who's ascended to heaven, he ministers in a superior sanctuary. He doesn't fool around in a skin tent like the tabernacle, nor does he minister in a physical building on earth. Those temples have all crumbled long ago. His temple is in heaven. He ministers in the real holy of holies. I want you to kind of screw your brain on here for a few minutes because we're going to dig into these next few verses and I think you'll find it exciting and see what God wants you to see through this. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary. What sanctuary? It says, even of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Ah. Now, Jesus isn't a priest in this earthly tabernacle or the early temple. He's a priest in the true one, which the Lord pitched, not man. God's got his own holy of holies. He functions, Jesus functions as a high priest, not in the earthly temple, but in the heavenly dwelling place of God, because that's where he sits. An interesting note comes to my mind here in Acts chapter 7. Uh, I think it's down about maybe verse 55 or so. We have an occasion. Some people have argued about the finished work of Christ because Acts 7.55. I love this. You know, the, this is talking about Stephen who preached and got stoned for it. They heard the message that he gave and it must have, I mean, he must have been a powerful preacher. You know, it's a wonder to me sometimes that God lets some of his most powerful preachers only live a short time. All we know about Stephen was really this one sermon. How would you like to be called into the ministry and the very first time you preach, they want to kill you? Amen. That's how powerful his sermon was. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, he got a reaction. Glory to God. Don't you like this? Listen to the next verse. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting. No, he wasn't sitting. It says Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now his redemptive work is finished as far as redemption is concerned. He is seated. But every time one of his own people gets into trouble, he stands up. Why? Because he has something to do. His power and his energy is activated in those moments in behalf of his own people. 
That's his mediator's work. For he's seated in his redemptive work, but he's active as our mediator. What a tremendous promise this is. you got to see this. Back in Hebrews 8, it says he's a minister. A minister. That comes from a combination of two Greek words, which have to do with, well, one word means belonging to the people, and the other means to work. So in other words, he's one who works for the sake of the people. We get our word waiter from the same root words. Okay, A waiter is one who, who ministers to the people in the restaurant or whatever. Okay, Jesus is one who ministers for us in heaven for our sake. Amen. You know what? I'm constantly, I'm reminded of this truth all the time. And yet it's, it's really so hard to grasp the fact that Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his magnitude, in all of his exaltation in heaven is still preoccupied with ministering to me. Amen. He's always serving. He condescends even in his glorious nature now on the throne of God. He stands up to minister and intercede in my behalf whenever I have a need. He never received his majesty as something to be selfishly enjoyed. It's in Christ that majesty and service are perfectly met melted together amen and notice that word sanctuary it's just a simple word it's based on the word hogios and hokinonis is the form it simply means the holies a minister of the holies which be a combination of the holy place and the holy of holies what does that mean it's heaven itself did you know that heaven itself is God's holy place, God's holy of holies. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in heaven. Their heaven is synonymous with the true holy places. So God's holy place is heaven. And if you want another cross-reference, go to Psalms 102, verse 19, which calls heaven God's sanctuary. And so it is that God has a holy place in heaven, and that's where Jesus ministers. And notice he calls it the true tabernacle. That word true is not used here as an opposite sense from false. He's not saying the true tabernacle as opposed to the false tabernacle. No. He's using this word true in contrast with something that is shadowy or unreal. The difference between a typical shadowy, temporary thing and one that is true. The true one is abiding, solid, and real. In chapter 9, it really details this. Let me just go into a little bit of chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. The first covenant had an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first in which the lampstand and the showbread, and it goes on down to talk about that, and the veil, and then the holy place, and the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, in the verse 4, keeps going all the way down. In verse 9 it says, there was a, or this was a figure for the time then present. That's all it was. 
It was only a figure in which were offered gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service, what? Perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in food and drink and washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them till the time of reformation or the regeneration. It wasn't until Jesus came and began to minister in the true tabernacle. Because in verse 11 it says, But Christ, becoming a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, and, and so forth. Christ ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, the holy of holies, where God is. He doesn't minister in a shadowy temple on earth. Many people think that he ministers in the local church. No, he doesn't. He's not. Jesus does not occupy the church building. Amen? Let me give you an illustration that will help you understand this. The Greek philosophers had an interesting and very dominating thought. If you studied uh, Greek philosophy or anything, I, I studied in college, uh, both as bachelor's degree and as master's degree, we had classes on this. But the Greeks always thought in two terms, of, in terms of two worlds. One was a real world, one was unreal. You may have studied about Plato. You may have studied a little bit about the you know, Aristotle, polemic, and some of these other things that have to do with philosophy in those days. And You may have run across this kind of a dual concept, especially because that was the basic doctrine of Plato. But Plato always said somewhere there was a real, and that what we saw was the unreal. The world of space and time was a world of shadows. It was a world of copies, pale copies at best, a world of unreal reflections. But somewhere there was a real world. And he talks about the universal horse, for example, that all other horses are just a shadow somewhere in some place of the true horse. Or the true chair is somewhere. Everything else is only a shadow chair. That was Greek philosophy. This is only a shadow world that we live in. Somewhere there is a real world. And in that real world, there's the universal horse and the universal chair, the universal tree or whatever. That was Plato's attempt at explaining these things. And I think it can relate here. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying very much the same thing. The writer of Hebrews is not a Greek philosopher. But he's speaking about the revelation of God. And in a very, a very real sense, the Greeks weren't too far off. There is a real world. Where we are at now is not the real world. In terms of God's revelation of the Old Covenant, it was all just shadows and types and pictures and reflections, all from the pattern which is in heaven. The earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, is a place that was only a copy of, of the real temple of God. Earthly worship is only a remote reflection of real worship of what that will be when we get to heaven. The earthly priesthood is only an inadequate shadow of the real priesthood. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 25 verse 40, and it will be quoted you as a matter of fact in Hebrews in verse 5 in a minute, but you'll find that when Moses received the instructions about how to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, God said to him, 
Look that you make them after their pattern which was shown to you in the mountain. For the pattern was heavenly. All the earthly things are only pictures of the pattern. So Jesus is superior to Aaron, number one, because he's seated. And number two, because he serves in the real sanctuary, a superior sanctuary, not pitched by man, but pitched by God himself. And he serves in the real sanctuary. Amen. Now in verse 3, wow. In verse 3, he begins to pursue his argument from the general to the particular. Let's say that this, that because there are some great things here. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the question could come up at this point. Well, if he's finished his work and he's up there in heaven, what's he got to do? Well, every high, every high priest is appointed to be a minister, right? If he's a legitimate high priest, that means he'll be busy. He'll be ministering in the area of gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, so it is a necessity that this man must have somewhat also to offer. If it's a standard commodity for priests to do it, then Jesus will be doing it. Because he's the perfect priest. You see, the Jew at this point would say, well, that's no priest at all. You don't have any priest at all. He may, he may just be up there sitting around, but he hasn't got anything to do. There's no ministry there. So therefore, he's not a true high priest. And so the writer simply says this, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary this man does as well. So did Jesus offer sacrifices? Yes, he did. He offered the sacrifice of himself. But notice the term gifts. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, the statement there that every high priest taken from among, among men is ordained for men in things to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices. And the gifts idea simply divides sacrifices into the two kinds that are in Scripture. Remember, there are two different kinds of sacrifice. The first kind of sacrifice was the meal offering, right? In the meal offering, there was no bloodshed. You merely brought the meal offering as it was. And the other kind of sacrifice was the blood sacrifice. And that's the distinction we're seeing here. He's simply saying every priest is involved in both kinds of offerings. Bloodless meal offerings, gifts, and blood offerings, sacrifices for sin. So Jesus, if he's the true high priest, will also be doing both of these things. Ah, well, I understand that, Brother Bob. He did the first, the sacrifice of blood, when he offered his own blood on the mercy seat, when he offered himself as a sacrifice. But I don't understand about the gifts. Is he still ministering to the area of gifts? If so, what are they? All right, let's take a moment and explain it to you. In the Old Testament, all of the meal offerings had to do with thanksgiving and dedication. When a man brought a meal offering, he was thanking God and dedicating his life to God. It was an act of dedication, not an atonement for sin. It was a personal dedication, a personal commitment to God. And what he's doing is praising God and thanking God and acknowledging God in his life and committing himself to live for God. That's what those sacrifices meant. And so we see Jesus 
continuing to do this for us. For none of us, watch this here, listen to me now. None of us can praise God or can dedicate ourselves to God or can truly worship God or truly thank God unless we do it through Jesus Christ. We always come to God by him, the scripture says, right? So in a sense, Christ continues, even now, to minister gifts to God. Our gifts, glory to God. As we bring the thanks and the praise and the worship of our hearts and dedication of our lives to praise God with, Christ takes those gifts, the gifts of our thanks, our praise and our worship and our dedication, and offers them to God. So he still ministers in the area of gifts. He no longer ministers in the area of sacrifices. He only needed to do that, what? One time. And so he says in effect, in verse 3, that he is a legitimate high priest who continues to minister. Amen? In verse 4, he goes on to talk about the fact that he's a heavenly priest. It says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Now, why wouldn't Christ be a priest if he was on earth? If he'd been designed to be an earthly priest, what's the one thing that would have withheld him from the priesthood? He's from the wrong tribe, wasn't he? He could not qualify to be an earthly priest because he was not born of Levi. He wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood. So therefore, he'd be disqualified. So he simply says, and Jews have said at this point in their mind, well, if he's a priest, what's he doing up there? Why does he come down here where we need him? Well, he can't be on earth ministering, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, God has set a certain ceremonial law in motion. That priesthood still exists on earth. God does not need other priests to do what the priesthood does. It's interesting to note that God never confuses substance with shadow. He never mixes the two. So Jesus cannot be an earthly priest for the very fact that he's from the wrong tribe. He has to minister somewhere else. And the point is, he does minister somewhere else, in a better place, which makes his priesthood a better priesthood. And verse 5 goes on to talk about this. Who serve These priests who serve as an example and shadow of heavenly things. Those priests in verse 4 who offer gifts on this earth, according to the law, are examples in a shadow of Heavenly things. As Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, this is Exodus 25 again, it says, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. In other words, even Moses must have known that on this earth, that's not the real thing. It's just a shadow, a type and shadow of the pattern he saw in heaven. So Christ must be a priest of a superior sanctuary. He cannot be one in the earthly priesthood because he's the wrong tribe. There doesn't need to be confusion here because there are already earthly priests doing what they've been set up to do. But they are only examples of the shadow of the heavenly priesthood and the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy place, because that's first. Amen. The word example means a sketch, an outline, or a copy. You could also translate as figure in chapter 9, verse 24. This was only a copy of the real sanctuary. Amen? 
The second word is shadow, skia. It says exactly what it means. It's a shadow or a silhouette. Do you know that a shadow has no independent substance or any independent existence? You can't prove it's there. It has no existence at all. It exists only as proof of the fact there's a reality somewhere else, right? When you see a shadow, you can look around and say, something must be making the shadow. The shadow has no independent existence at all. It cannot exist without the real. And that's true of the Aaronic priesthood. It has no independent existence in and of itself. It's merely a shadow of the real, which is heavenly. And so, simply stated, Jesus is a better high priest because he has a superior sanctuary, one in heaven, which is real. The real, not a copy. And he's seated, which no priest ever, ever thought of doing, for his work was never done. Then he moves to verse 6 and makes a transition to the final point. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Okay, what's he saying here? Let's just take the first part. He's obtained a more excellent ministry. That's a tremendous statement. That pretty well sums it all up. He's a better priest all the way down the line. And he's seated. He's in the true sanctuary in heaven. Therefore, he's obtained a more excellent ministry than any of the priests could ever hope to accomplish. This is telling the Jew, why would you want to fool around in the shadows when you could come to the reality? You see? He's saying to the reader, why do you want to just dawdle away in these things that are only copies when you can come to the truth in Jesus Christ and you can have a priest who's in the holy of holies in heaven above, not just in a shadow down here. That's a tremendous message to the Jews as well as to us. Amen? In verse 6 he says, making his transition complete, he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So if he's superior in a superior sanctuary, then his covenant is also superior. And that's what I want you to see today. He is superior because of his seat, because of his sanctuary, and because of his superior covenant. And you see in verses, really from verse 6 all the way through verse 13 here in Hebrews Hebrews 8 this is primarily quoting from Jeremiah we don't have to study it in great detail we'll just look at it he's the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises just that concept of the word mediator we know the apostle Paul said to Timothy that we have one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ the word used here for mediator is misites, from misos, which means to be in the middle. The mediator is the one in the middle, standing in the middle between two others, and brings them together. In Galatians 3.19, Paul uses that word misites to speak about Moses. It says Moses is the misites of the old covenant. He's the one who brought God and man together under the old covenant system. But here, the writer says Jesus is the perfect Mesites, the perfect mediator of a better covenant. All that Moses couldn't do because of human weakness, Jesus does. Amen. Jesus brings God and men together perfectly, providing access where the old priesthood could never do that. This covenant is far, far better 
because he is better. Amen? And it's also better if you look at the end of verse 6, because it's established on better what? Promises. Now, all covenants are made on the basis of promises. God would promise to do something. That's what a covenant is. And what the promises are of the better covenant are clearly outlined from verses 8 to 12. Because it's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31.31. We're going to look at it. It's based on better promises. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there'd be no place sought for the second. And at that point, if I was an unbelieving Jew, I would say, that's right. So why are you giving us all this baloney about a second one? What are you, why are you doing this? Are you saying the first one's got faults and problems? What gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to tell me that there needs to be another covenant? What gives you the right to say the first one had a lot of faults and there's another one coming along? Who says so? So the writer of the book of Hebrews answers those questions and says, God, through Jeremiah, your own prophet, says so. Zap! <laughs> Amen. Just knock them flat on their face with that one. In verse 8, he says, For finding fault with them, he says, Who says? God says, through Jeremiah. Finding fault through them, Behold, the day is coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Hallelujah. That's Jeremiah. That's not new. Your word says to you that the old covenant has problems and God's going to have to get another one. You know, there are Jews today who are hanging on tenaciously to the old covenant. They despise the truth that's preached about the new covenant. They hate that truth. They're not willing to acknowledge that it is in their own prophets, their own beloved and dear prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who said, God is going to write a new covenant. And he did. The first covenant was not faultless. It was weak in the flesh, right? Galatians 3.21. It was excellent for what it was meant to do, which was to point men to Christ. But it could not bring men to God. It was the sign. It was not the train that got them there. Paul said to the Galatians that the law was our taskmaster, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. There needed to be a better covenant. The Jew says, who says so? So the writer says, God says by Jeremiah. God prophesied his own words. Jeremiah quotes God directly in verse 8. For he saith, God said it, recorded by Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant. And from there, Jeremiah launches in the very words of God. God speaking. God tells us how the new one's better. They're not always different than the first, but together they make it different. Amen. Let's begin very rapidly here. We're running out of time. We'll begin with the first one. Diaphasi. Now, diaphasi is not too fascinating just to say it, but when we get to it, you'll see it. The normal Greek word, anytime you made an arrangement with anybody, the normal Greek word was sunfisi, sun meaning, with an, uh, sun meant with an, on an equal basis. Normally, in any kind of agreement, sunfisi would be the correct word. It was the word for a marriage covenant. It was the word for all ordinary contracts between two people on an equal level. Diaphasy is not used for an agreement like that. Diaphasy is reserved for wills or making a will. You say, well, why does the Spirit choose diaphasy when it says the Lord will make a new covenant? The reason is this. 
Sunfeast, it describes an agreement made by two equals. God at no time considers himself an equal with men. God does not make equal covenants with men. God and man. Now, watch this now. This is a critical point you need to understand. God and man never enter agreements on equal terms. God does not come to us and say, look, here are my terms. And we say, well, here are my terms. And then we kind of give a little, get a little, and it all works all together. No, it doesn't work like that. You can never, you can never ever, at no time, in no way, under any circumstances, make a bargain with God. It's impossible. You can never argue the terms of God's covenant. You can never say, well, now look, God, just listen to me for a minute. If you give a little bit on this thing, I'll adjust a little too. You can't do that. God's the one that makes the covenant. You either accept it or you reject it. You don't change it. Amen? The best illustration of this is a will. That's why diaphesi is reserved for a will. A will is not made on equal terms, right? No, not at all. It's made by one person. And the other person either accepts it or rejects it. You don't have anything to say about it. You can't bargain with it. That's why the word is diaphesi. Our relationship to God is based only on God's terms, never our terms, on God's. He's the author. That's why I say the first feature of the new covenant is, remember, it's God who wrote the new covenant. And people could come along and say, well, I don't see how God could say that. What about over here? This guy believes this. Or what about all the people in China or India or all over the world? People who've never heard of him. I mean, God's got to adjust it to fit all these things. No. God made the rules. He made the covenant on his terms. A man either takes it as is or rejects it. There's no arguments. No negotiation. In the first place, God knows exactly what is right. Exactly what is best. And any concession God made would have to be made in the favor of the person being wrong. And he can't do that. He's the author. It's perfect. The second thing about the new covenant, as we get ready to close, it's different. It's different from the old. It's not just an attachment to the old covenant. You see that in the word new. There are several words in Greek for new. Neos, which means new in the sense of production. And kinos, which means New in the sense of quality. The difference would be between a new car and a new invention. You can say, oh, I have a new car. It's not really new in a keenest sense. It's new in the neo sense. Because there's a lot of other cars. Yours has four wheels too. You got an engine, a steering wheel, a seat. So it's not a new invention. Okay? But if a guy came along and said, I just invented a seven-wheeled car. they say, oh, wow, that's new. That would be keenest. Something that had never existed before. Amen? And the new covenant is just like that. In verse 13 it says, Now that which decays and grows old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant vanishes away. Decays. Vanishes away. It means to obliterate. To completely wipe out. That's what happened to the old covenant. It was totally wiped out. Amen. And that was an important message to the readers of Hebrews because they're hanging on to the old covenant. Amen. So what did we learn about the new covenant? God's the author. It's different. The third thing, the new covenant is with Israel. It's with the Jews. And that's what I meant when I said this morning, God never had a covenant with the Gentiles. And as far as I can see, never will. The new covenant is not made with the church. It's made with the same people the old covenant was made with. It was made with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel, despite doctrines that teach the contrary. And you say, well, what are we doing? Well, we're beneficiaries of the new covenant. 
Just like Gentiles could be beneficiaries of the old covenant. But notice it couldn't be any clearer. I'll make a new covenant with the church. Is that what it says? No. It says with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Amen. Glory to God, we have to close. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, this is the day and the time to do so. You can only accept what God's offered or you can reject it. And if you face, if you reject it, you face eternity on your own in the lake of fire with no remedy ever. This is serious business. Not just some nicety we do at the end of the broadcast. This is absolute serious business. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to become your Lord, do so now. Just pray this prayer with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I acknowledge my sinful life. And I ask you, in Jesus' name, to forgive me of my sins because of his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, I thank you that you are my high priest, that your sacrifice one time paid the price for my sin forever. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Take over my life. Be my Lord, my King, and my Savior. Help me to live my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let us know. We want to rejoice with you. And we got some things we want to send you. Amen. Glory to God. We're, we're out of time for today. Until next time, this is Pastor Robert to reminding you, God loves you, we love you, and greater is he who's in you than he that's in this earth. And be blessed in all you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.